Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the welcome table. You can grab it. If you don't own a Bible, just take it home. It's now your Bible. Love to have you getting into God's Word with us this morning. So this morning, we're, we're continuing our summer series through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, I've taught a few already. Uh, some other leaders in the church have taught a few, and it's been a blessing. And, and in part 7 today, we're going to be studying Matthew 7, verses 1 through 14. But just for some context here as we get in, um, over the last two weeks, um, as we've studied chapter 6, both Josh Hughes and Julian the Gracia teaching the last two weeks, uh, such a blessing. Uh, both of them, the things that they shared. Uh, we've been taught by Jesus regarding what it looks like to, you know, what it looks like in his kingdom to have kingdom access and communion with the Father. We saw that in what Jesus said about prayer and fasting. We have access to the Father, we can come to him as Father. We can do that. We can commune with him. Life in his kingdom means that we're, we're to have kingdom priorities. We're to lay up our treasures in heaven. We're, we're to not serve God, uh, God and mammon. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so we're to have these sort of kingdom priorities in life. We're, we're people who have kingdom provision. The Lord takes care of us. He provides for us. We can trust him instead of being anxious or worrying or, or pursuing after the things that those who don't have the Lord pursue after. But today in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 7, Jesus is going to teach us regarding what it looks like in his kingdom to have a kingdom sort of judgment, that we're to first judge ourselves so that we can then see others clearly. And also, we're to be people who have a kingdom perspective in how we come to the Father in prayer and how we're to treat others and in knowing the spiritual reality of living the way of Jesus, his kingdom. Throughout this sermon, Jesus has been clearing up wrong understandings that people had or might have who are now part of the kingdom of heaven, but also at the same time giving right understanding so that people would know what his kingdom is about, know what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like. And one common misunderstanding that people could have because of the hypocritical and self-righteous example of the religious leaders was that real righteousness would make a person real judgy. I mean, the more righteous you are, the more judgy you should be. I mean, if you were looking at how the Pharisees lived their lives, that would be the conclusion that you came to, that being closer to God should make you more critical of others. And Jesus is going to clear up any misunderstandings regarding this, and he's going to establish a proper understanding when it comes to how we judge and, and see and treat Others. And so with that context in mind, let's read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, beginning here, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, 
It will be measured back to you. In verse 1, we're given a command here. We are to judge not. You know, isn't it interesting that even unbelievers who have never been to church, never read the Bible, somehow know verse 1 by heart. They might even be able to, like, reference the part of the Bible it came, came from. No, it doesn't say in Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Maybe some of us have quoted this verse when we felt judged by someone else. You know, uh, an important question to ask and address as we consider what it means to be people with kingdom judgment is, first of all, what, what kind of judging is Jesus talking about? Because elsewhere in Scripture, it's clear that there are right times to judge. There is a right kind of judgment to make. Uh, in 1 Corinthians even, there's such a strong judgment made that Paul tells the believers in Corinth, kick a person out of the church because they had been, this guy had been sleeping in an unrepentant relationship with his stepmom. And, and Paul goes, you need to judge. You need to judge. I'm not saying judge those outside of the church, but inside the church, judgment is necessary. So there are times that judgment is needed. But the wrong kind of judgment should never be true of you and me. Never be true. And so in order to figure out what kind of judging that Jesus is talking about, we need to, fig- we need to look at this verse in its context. So we're going to read again, starting in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 5. Jesus again, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. These verses are key to knowing what kind of judging that Jesus is warning against. The the first kind of judgment Jesus is warning against is an unjust or unfair sort of judgment. We see this in verses 1 and 2. That word judge that Jesus uses here in the Greek means to form a critical, a critical, critical opinion of something by examination or scrutiny. When we examine, when we scrutinize the lives of others, and I, and I think it's important to note here that Jesus says, brother. So there's this, like, within the body of Christ dynamic here that Jesus is speaking into. But when we ex- examine, when we scrutinize the, li- the lives of others, our judgment is often unfair or unjust because we often tend to judge the hearts and motives of someone whose hearts and motives that we can't know. We, we can think we know, but man, how often have we judged someone without really knowing the motivation behind what that person was doing, what was really in their heart, when, when whatever happened that you feel like you could, oh man, I saw something wrong. And, and we misjudge. We misjudge because we don't know what's going on. 
in the depths of someone's heart. We don't know what's going on with their motives and easily kind of come up with an unfair or unjust judgment of them. Jesus says, with what judgment we judge, we will be judged. And with the measure, the the rule, the standard that we use and we measure others up to, it will be measured back to us. This is a major reinforcement to us of the importance of being merciful and gracious with others. Why? Because the measure that we use, the standard that we kind of put other people up to, God's going to use with us. And that's kind of sobering, isn't it? Because oftentimes in our unjust or unfair judgment, what's the standard that we're using? Ourselves. It's us. I'm measuring somebody up to me. Or I'm measuring them up to someone else I think that's more godly than them. But I'm not I'm not looking at them through the, the, the lens of mercy and grace. I'm not looking at them and going, wow, Lord, before you, they're going to stand or fall, as Paul would say. They're your servant. We will be judged based on the stand that, standard that we're using to judge other people. And it's really easy to put something on others that we ourselves are not even living by. But, but that's an unjust or unfair sort of Judgment. Jesus is saying, don't judge somebody else by a standard that you yourself are not willing to be judged by and aren't even living by yourself. This, the second kind of judgment Jesus is warning against is a hypercritical sort of judgment. We see this in verse 3. In order for someone to see a speck of dust that it's in, that's in somebody else's eye, you'd really have to be examining Someone and, and even more than that, looking for something wrong or out of place, right? I mean, if, if I'm here to you guys, I'm, I'm not seeing what's in your eye. I'm, I mean, I can maybe come up with like, oh, I think someone's in their eye because they're rubbing, you know, like, oh man, there's something there, it's bugging them. But how close do you need to be? How critical do you need to be in your vision? to be looking for something, to be able to go, oh, there's something there that doesn't belong. Jesus is clearly letting us know that we are not to be, as believers, sin sniffers, fault finders, the sin police, just going around looking for somebody to mess up. I saw that. (laughs) Everybody's on high alert around you. If people are on high alert around you, you might be hypercritical. Or maybe you just freak people out. I don't know. But Jesus is speaking against that sort of hypercritical judgment. I feel like in the days that we live in, there is such a heightened aspect of this sort of judgment, hypercritical, looking for something, wanting to find fault, wanting to point something out about somebody else. And man, it's clear that Jesus is going, that's not 
that's not real kingdom judgment. That's not the way he's wanting us to interact with one another. That's not us. But then in verse 4, we see another aspect of this. The, the third kind of judgment Jesus is warning against is a prideful sort of judgment. In verse 4, where it says, let me remove, in the Greek, this is written in the imperative mood, which, which means it's a command. And here we see someone coming to their brother or sister in Christ, and they see that there's a flaw, that there's something there that, that doesn't belong, and they come to that person and, and sort of forcefully command for, for that person to allow them to remove the flaw that they see. There's no tact. There's no gentleness. There's no care there. Just a, a rough take charge. I have to take matters into my own hands sort of judgment. I know there's many people that wear contact lenses. That sounds like torture to me. I cannot even let my wife put eye drops in my eyeball. The moment that anything is that close to my eye, I am just spazzing out, eyes blinking all crazy, eyes shutting right as the drops falling. I can't do it. Like, at, if someone were to come to me and they see something in my, let me, uh, fingers going towards my, like, no, like, you don't. You're, no, what? If you went to the eye doctor and your eye doctor treated your eyeball like that, let me just, let me remove that thing in there. You're like, no, take a breath. <laughs> Put your gloves on, like, get the scope out, like, be, be gentle, be tender. This is a sensitive area. It's interesting that Jesus specifically says the eye. It's a sensitive area organ in our body, easily damaged. The damage can be irreparable. You can get a hearing aid to help with loss of hearing. But when you lose your eyesight, no amount of glasses are going to restore that. And we see this picture here of Jesus going, use care. If we see something that doesn't belong, use care. And that care requires humility. If there's any sort of pride involved in how I come to someone else and I, and I do see something, maybe if I'm not even trying to be hypercritical, but there is clearly something going on. Humility is a necessity in having the right kind of king, kingdom judgment. Humility and care. Humility and care. Because Jesus doesn't follow this through and go, just forget about it altogether. He's like, no, deal with the thing in your own eye first. Then you can see clearly. Then you can help. Because oftentimes when we're judging in this sort of way, you know what? It doesn't actually help. It actually brings greater hurt. We can be those who help. Even in the right kind of judgment, we can be those who help. But if there's pride involved, it's not helping. It's not going to help. It's just going to make it worse. And you, and you might actually damage the person more than you're helping them. This is the sort of judgment, this prideful sort of judgment that basically dethrones God as judge 
and puts oneself in God's place as judge, jury, and executioner. And Jesus is speaking against this sort of prideful judgment. And the fourth kind of judgment Jesus is warning against is a hypocritical sort of judgment. We see this in verse 5. Look at that verse again with me. Jesus says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory, but Jesus is using an extreme contrast. I thought about like having Julian come up and talk about the whole beam thing for a little bit. Then I could come back up, come back in. That was a joke. Bad joke. Anyways, moving on. He's a woodworker. Seemed right at the moment, but anyways. We feel we can come to our brother or sister because of a speck that they have in their eye while the whole while we have this huge plank in our own eye that we aren't dealing with first. It's just plain hypocrisy and it's all kinds of wrong. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 to speak into this kind of hypocritical judgment. If you want to write that down, look at that passage later, Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. But Jesus is talking about someone who has, an un, who has undealt with or unrepentant sin in their life, who goes to someone else and feels that they have the right to judge or correct that person, even though they aren't dealing with their own sin, their own issues first. Clear from the picture Jesus gives here that hypocrisy distorts or, or damages our ability to judge rightly. Hypocrisy in our judgment is, is like that plank in the eye. There's no way you and I are seeing anything clearly if we, if we had a two-by-four sticking out of our eyeball. It's not going to happen. It'll damage, hypocrisy damages our ability to judge rightly and it makes it where we can't even see ourselves clearly or others clearly. Jesus is speaking against this sort of hypocritical judgment. Now, it's, under, it's, it's important for us to understand Jesus wasn't speaking against all judgment, but the heart behind the judgment. There is a wrong way to judge and there is a right way to judge. Check out what David Gutzik said in regards to what Jesus is hitting on here in these verses of Matthew 7. He said just a little later in this sermon, Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, Jesus commanded us to know ourselves and others by the fruit of their life. And some sort of assessment is necessary for that. The Christian is called to show unconditional love, but the Christian is not called to show, or is not called to unconditional approval. We really can love people who do things that should not be approved of. So while this does not prohibit examining the lives of others, it certainly prohibits doing it in the spirit it is often done. I just thought that was really, really good. Having kingdom judgment requires us to make sure that our judgment is not unjust or unfair. It's not hypercritical, it's not prideful, and it's not hypocritical. If we can judge ourselves in those ways and we can bring our motives before the Lord, God will help us to be people who can come to someone and actually be a help 
and minister to someone else who is struggling, dealing with some sort of sin or failure. Now, the the fact that kingdom judgment needs to be void of the things we've just looked at to be the right kind of judgment does not mean that kingdom judgment is not still necessary. We see this clearly in verse 6. And so read verse 6 with me. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Um, so my, my dogs in the past, we've had multiple dogs. We've had a couple dogs pass away some years ago. Um, we've had more than one dog chew up more than one Bible of ours in the house. Didn't even care. No remorse. One of them was even one of the kids' Bibles. He didn't care it was a holy Bible. He didn't care. There's no value there, right? If you were to come to a herd of swine, you had a string of pearls. Look, look at this. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I want to gift it to you. The pig's not going to look at you and go, oh, thanks so much. Oh, my gosh. This was too much. It's too expensive. Let me just set it on this shelf over here. No, it might eat the, the, the string of pearls. If it doesn't eat it, it's going to fall on the ground. The pig's going to go to the bathroom on it, trample it, and roll around on top of it. Like, there's no value there. So we see in this picture, Jesus isn't trying to use a derogatory term towards the person he's referring to. He's trying to identify Help us to identify someone who has no regard for any sort of spiritual value, any sort of spiritual uh, truth that we could look and go, man, Lord, this person is more animalistic in their approach to any sort of thing of your kingdom, the gospel, than they would ever be able to receive it. I like what Pastor Tony Evans said about this verse. He wrote, Jesus' instructions in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, don't preclude all judgments. There are numerous places in the Bible in which God instructs his people to make judgment calls. Here is one of them. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. These are references to those who despise spiritual things. But you can't obey this command unless you can discern who the dogs and pigs are. The difference between judgmentalism and what Jesus calls us to do here is the standard we use. When you sinfully judge, you use your own standard and condemn others. When you obey Jesus' words in chapter 7, verse 6, you use wisdom, refusing to give what is precious in God's sight to those who refuse to value spiritual things. You know, there are some people who, because of their rejection of the gospel, have an unyielding disregard and and even an aggressive opposition to the kingdom of God, to salvation, to the gospel. And to keep giving it to them would actually just increase their opposition to it and their opposition to us. And that's seen in Jesus saying, they'll turn and tear you in pieces, But understand this, this is not a light judgment 
to make. It's, it's a judgment that would require a lot of prayer, which I believe is even seen in the following verses. Requires us hearing from the Lord, being led by his spirit in regards to that person or those people who we've been sharing the gospel with. But clearly from what Jesus is teaching us here, we may interact with these sorts of people and we need to have kingdom judgment. We need to have the right kind of judgment to know what Jesus would have us to do. That doesn't mean we stop loving or praying for those people. But there may come a time after having shared the gospel with them where the Lord might tell us that continuing to share with them is not going to be helpful. It's actually going to be hurtful. And if that's what the Lord leads us to do, we, we really in that, those moments have to release them into the Lord's care and keep praying for him to do what only he can do in their hearts. And now in verses 7 through 14, Jesus is going to teach us regarding what it looks like in his kingdom and have a, to have a kingdom perspective in how we come to the Father in prayer, in knowing how to treat others, and in knowing the spiritual reality of, of living the way of Jesus in his kingdom. And so read verses 7 through 11 with me. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have to understand that the promise that Jesus giving, is giving us here in these verses, which again is a teaching he's giving to his disciples, those who are a part of his kingdom. This isn't a general statement to humanity. Just ask, receive, and it'll just whoever. doesn't matter. You and follow God. No, this is to disciples. These are kingdom people he's speaking to. This, this teaching, this promise flows from what Jesus already described in chapter 6, verses 5 through 14, when teaching on prayer. Listen, when our lives are characterized by worship of God, these are things that we can pull out of the model prayer Jesus gave in chapter 6. When our lives are characterized by worship of God, reverence of him and his nature and his character, when we're living for his kingdom and not our own, his will and not our own, when we're relying and depending upon him for daily provision, when we're continually confessing and repenting of our sins and, and forgiving others, and when we're living lives of victory over temptation and the evil one, we can have the kind of confidence in prayer that Jesus describes in verses 7 through 11. We don't come to this and go, well, he just said, ask. Give me a Ferrari, Lord. Give me a million dollars, Lord. Whatever. It's not, this isn't that. This isn't a blab it and grab it sort of passage. Name it and claim it. That's not this. This has to be taken in the context of what Jesus has already taught us regarding prayer in this very sermon. 
So if we're coming to him, he's really our father. If my life is all about worshiping him, if if my life is caught up in, Lord, your kingdom, your will, what does that weed out in us? Well, I'm not coming to him with selfish ambition. I'm not coming to him, Lord, do this for me. This is for me. Just anything that I want. No, this weeds out the things of self. The the things that would distort my prayer life has already been taken care of because I'm, I'm living a life of confession and repentance. I'm not holding on to unforgiveness of other people. I'm a forgiving person. I'm not giving in to temptation and sin because, you know what, the Lord is leading me out of temptation. He's delivering me from the evil one. When our lives are in line with the model of prayer that Jesus gave, you can guarantee that, that our hearts will be in line to be able to pray, pray and have the sort of confidence in prayer that Jesus is describing here. And that's huge. Verse 7, if we, if we don't know this, if this is new to us, it's written in the imperative. It's written in a way in the Greek where, where we're, we're to keep, in the present tense, that we're to keep on asking, we're to keep on seeking, we're to keep on knocking. This is what God is desiring our prayer life to look like. Consistent, continual, faith-filled, dependent, confident that God will show up in ways that only he can. George Mueller, a man who knew the power of prayer and he saw God provide miraculously for thousands of orphans as he just prayed for God's provision. I mean, this guy had thousands of orphans, these orphanages that were, that were started up and there were moments where he's just like, God, we don't have anything for these kids. We don't even have food for them this morning. They have no milk, there's no bread and God, God would have a, a, a bread truck literally like break down or a milk truck break down in front of the orphanage and, and they'd go, you know what? All this is gonna spoil. All this is gonna go bad. Can you guys use it? Yeah. I was just praying for God to provide. Seeing God provide in this, these sorts of ways. He said this about prayer. George Mueller said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. Prayer is not for the purpose of changing God's mind or moving him to action. We don't persist in prayer because bugging him bends his will. No, it's through prayer that God changes our minds. He conforms our will to his, and he moves us to action. And without Jesus' teaching here, we wouldn't have the right kind of kingdom perspective on prayer. Yes, Jesus has already given us a model for prayer in the servant, but, but added to that model for prayer, he's wanting to give us the right perspective and confidence in prayer. Clearly, we are not to be timid, but bold in our prayers. We don't need to be fearful or guarded in our prayers. Like he might give us a stone or a serpent when we're asking him for something that we need or something good. So the Father knows the things we have need of before we ask him, as Jesus already said in chapter 6, verse 8. 
He knows our needs and values us highly, as Jesus already said in chapter 6, verses 25 through 32. But we also see here that he's good, and he wants to give good things to us as his kids, but he wants us to seek him, to come to him, to trust him, to depend upon him, to, to make him and his kingdom first or supreme in our lives. Why? Because it's a relationship that God is after. Why would we pray about stuff that God already knows? It's a relationship. We might know what our kids need, but man, doesn't it, isn't it awesome when our kids come to us and they ask for something that's good? Like, wow, yes, of course, I already wanted to give that to you. We get this picture of God as Abba. He's just going, I was just waiting for you to ask me. I'm, I want to bless you. I want to give you good things. But man, you know what? I just want you. I just want you. I want relationship with you, communion with you. What an amazing God we have. So the result of us seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness will be that we ask and we keep asking. We'll seek and we'll keep seeking. We'll knock and we'll keep knocking in prayer. And when his kingdom and his righteousness, when his will is driving our lives, our lives will become in line with his will for our lives And in that place, what we're asking for will be given. What we're seeking him about, we'll we'll find. And what we're knocking for, which implies something is closed, will be opened to us. And given the immediate context of what we've looked at so far in chapter 7, the importance of having kingdom judgment, as we've been considering, should drive us boldly and confidently and continually to the Lord in prayer for all the wisdom and mercy and grace and help that we need to judge properly. And you know what? He has a generous supply of what you and I need to do the things that he's calling us to do. Let's see how Jesus follows this up in verse 12. He says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 is what's known as the golden rule, which is completely different from what we hear in the movie Aladdin, that he who has the gold makes the rules. Not, that's not the golden rule. The world has its own version of this golden rule, but it's in the negative. If, if you wouldn't want someone to do something to you, you shouldn't do it to them. Or, you know what, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Here, though, Jesus states this in the positive, that we should consider, we should consider what we would want other people to do to us, and then we should be the ones doing those things. It's not reactive. Well, they treated me bad, so I didn't want them to do it, I'll just do it back. It's proactive. Man, I would love for someone to treat me like this. That's how I'm going to treat them first. That's how I'm going to go about this relationship. 
This is how I'm gonna go through my workday. This is how I'm gonna deal with my kids. This is how I'm gonna handle interactions with my spouse. What I would want them to do to me, that's what I'm gonna do those things. I, I like what William McDonald, Bible commentator, said about this verse. He wrote, the immediate connection of verse 12 with the preceding seems to be this. Since our Father is a giver of good things to us, we should imitate him in showing kindness to others. The way to test whether an action is beneficial to others is whether we would want to receive it ourselves. The golden rule had been expressed in negative terms at least 100 years before this time by Rabbi Hillel. However, by stating the rule in positive terminology, Jesus goes beyond passive restraint to active benevolence. I love this. Christianity, he says, is not simply a matter of abstinence from sin. It is positive goodness. This saying by Jesus is the law and the prophets. That is, it summarizes the moral teachings of the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets of Israel. The righteousness, he says, demanded by the Old Testament is fulfilled in in converted believers who thus walk according to the Spirit, Romans 8, 4. If this verse were universally obeyed, it would transform all areas of international relationships, national politics, family life, and church life. And what a good word. With that in mind, we need a kingdom perspective on what God is requiring of us. What's our responsibility when it comes to our actions and interactions with others? But along with that, whereas we're going to see in verses 13 and 14, 14, we also need a kingdom perspective on the path, the way of kingdom living that we've been called to as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Look at verses 13 and 14 as we start nearing our way to the end of our time. Jesus, verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Without this kingdom perspective Jesus gives us, we could easily look at the wide gate and the broad road with all its seeming freedom of movement. I mean, look at how broad it is. So non-restrictive. It looks so much easier. Look at all the, look at all the people. I mean, how could it be wrong? How could it be the wrong road if so many people have agreed that it's the right road? And and come to the same conclusion as so many others, but end up in spiritual and eternal ruin. See, the wide gate has a greater appeal because the way is broad. The mentality that you can just believe whatever you want to believe, it's all going to work out in the end. Just live however you want to live, it's all going to work out in the end. Except that that mentality is false. The reality of that wide gate and that broad road is that it only leads to destruction. It only leads to ruin. But with the narrow gate, there are few who find it, few that are on that difficult road that leads to life. 
And we might go, Jesus, why did you have to put the word difficult in there? Couldn't we have just had two roads, but they're, you know, the, the, the one that you're kind of telling us is the good one, it's really easy. Everything's just really chill all the time. Life's going to be good. You follow Jesus, problems are all gone, right? But clearly from the entire sermon so far, this is not the easy way of life to live by Jesus' kingdom and the ways of the kingdom. See, while it's a difficult way, the narrow gate is the only right way, the, the only way that leads to life. And while only few find it, we got to understand this, anyone can be a part of that few. Only few find it, but, but anyone can be a part of that few if they'll place their faith in Jesus Christ, who is himself the gate. He is the gate, Jesus said in John 10. He's the door of the sheep. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the Father. It's him. The way of Jesus is, is, is a difficult way. If we look back on what we've considered so far in this sermon from Jesus telling us that pers- persecution's gonna come. If we seek to live for him, tell others about him, people are gonna hate us, lie about us. They're gonna use us curse us to Jesus saying that we're to love our enemies. That's not easy. That we're to live lives free of hypocrisy. That's not that easy either. That we're to lay up treasure in heaven and not serve mammon, wealth, riches, possessions. We're to trust God for provision and not worry. That we're to we're not to judge others wrongly. We need, we're to be to those who have a right judgment. We're to do unto others as we would have them do to us. I think Jesus at this point in his sermon is again clearing up any confusion and, and he's giving us the right perspective on life in his kingdom. See, we can look around at those who aren't seeking to live out the way of Jesus in his kingdom, like I just pointed out that we've seen in the sermon and think, did I choose the right gate? And the right road? I mean, those, that, those people that are living for mammon, they seem like they're doing pretty good. Things are going really well. Look at all the financial security they have. They don't care about storing up treasure in heaven. We could think, man, did I choose the right way? This is hard. The way of Jesus is hard. From a natural perspective, from a human angle, this is not, these are not easy or natural things that Jesus is speaking into in this sermon. They require supernatural power to live out. You and I don't naturally just go, I want to live for the kingdom. I don't want to make my life about the things of this world. We're like, no, I like the things of this world. I like financial security. I like my stuff. We like to hate who we want to hate and love who we want to love. That's natural. But we haven't been called to the natural. The natural is what actually leads to destruction. 
may seem a whole lot easier. More people seem to be doing things the opposite of what Jesus has said and seem to have a pretty good life. But you know what? If any of us find ourselves in that place, maybe we're wondering those sorts of things, Jesus in these verses peels back the curtain, if we will, to reveal to us how things really are. No matter how much easier or better it may seem to take the road without persecution, where we can hate an enemy, choose who and how we want to love, where we can live for mammon, where we can judge who we want and how we want, not care about how we do unto others, no matter how much easier or better living that way may seem, Jesus, again, is peeling it back. Guys, it's, its end is destruction. It's ruin, both spiritually and eternally. Kingdom living, living the way of Jesus in this world may be difficult, but it is the only way that leads to life. New life, abundant life, eternal life, it's the only way that leads to life. It's the only way of true blessing. It's the only way of real love. It's the only way of real peace. It's the only way of real fulfillment and, and spiritual and eternal riches. It's the only way to have a heavenly father who loves us and wanna give, give good things to us. It's the only way to have a real hope and a secure future because those things are all sourced in our King and Savior, Jesus, who has made these promises and is the way. He is the way. And what a blessing that we get to have him. What a blessing that he didn't just leave us on the broad road. Like, well, that stinks for them. No, he saw that we were all going on the broad road. And he's like, I want to do something about that. I want to provide a way. And so Jesus became the way. He is the way. And he's still the way. He's still the way, even in our day-to-day -day life, in our day-to-day -day interactions, as we deal and live in a sinful, fallen world with you and I who do dumb things at times. We sin. We might be the person who gets the plank in our eye or the speck in our eye. And you know what? Jesus is going, I love you, and I want to do something about these things, and I want to tell you how to proceed the way I want you to live. Because why? His way is always best. His way is always best. We're going to finish the study next week in part eight. I'm the worship team come back up. In closing, you know, part of being made citizens of Christ's kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus is also being made part of the family of God. You know what? Not everybody values the family of God that highly. I think a lot of people kind of view the body of Christ as like the kooky cousin or uncle who they just try to avoid at family reunions. The man being made of the family, part of the family of God, this is an amazing privilege. It's an amazing blessing Having brothers and sisters in Christ is an amazing blessing that we don't have to go through this life alone. Becoming part of 
this amazing thing that Jesus has invented, which he calls his church, man, it's a blessing. But we need so badly to take these things that Jesus has been speaking into to heart. We need to put them into practice in our lives, both for the sake of his church, but also for the sake of our testimony to those who aren't yet saved. And when you and I have kingdom judgment and kingdom perspective the way that Jesus is speaking into here, there is an attractiveness to that. Because everyone is actually looking for us to do the opposite of these things. They're looking for us to judge with hypocrisy and unfairness and with a hypercritical attitude and with pride. They're looking for us to do that. That's, that's the assumption that many people have about disciples of Jesus. But the, the actions of, of some are not a reflection of what Jesus has actually called us into. To know that today we can seek him in these sorts of ways. Live the way that he's called us to live and know that life is in store. Life right now, but eternal life forevermore. And you know, if you've joined us this morning and you've never just opened your heart to Jesus, you've never received his free gift of salvation, had your sins forgiven, today can be the day of salvation for you. You don't have to walk in in the spiritual state. I'm sorry, you don't have to walk out in the spiritual state that you walked in. You know that, gosh, you know what? I'm not on that broad road leading to destruction any longer. Why? Because Jesus has saved me. He's put me on that road leading to life. I'm now a part of his kingdom. I'm no longer outside looking in. But it does require you and I to humble ourselves, repent of our sin and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Put my faith in you. So if that's you this morning, you need to make that decision for Jesus. I'm going to ask you right now just to raise your hand where you're at and just say, that's me. Pray for me, Jared, this morning. I want to be saved. I, I want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. I, I want to have access to the Father and, and have a heavenly Father this morning who, who I can come to with anything. Know that he cares for me. Is that anybody here this morning? You're going, that's me. That's me. You know, maybe this morning, even for some of us, we're going, you know what? I've been judging wrongly. There's been some things where I've, I'm guilty of some of these things that Jesus is talking about. Or you know what, maybe I've been looking about looking at the, the, the way that other people are living and almost with envy. Like, man, it seems really good. Lord, why aren't you doing those things with me? Let, can we just take a step back from that sort of mentality this morning just for a moment and go, look, even if that, a person has all the money in the world, all the health in the world, and they die and they spend all of eternity in hell, what good was the money? What good was the health? Guys, we have Jesus. We get to have Jesus. We have heaven in store. There are greater things ahead that we may or may not see on this side of heaven. That's okay. We get to have him. And heaven is gonna be perfect. It's gonna be amazing. 
And so if any of us have fallen into that trap of like looking and we're seeing other people and we're, we're envious or we're, we're looking back at Egypt and going, man, like the spices tasted really good back then. We had some good stuff. Yeah, there was slavery. Yeah, the bondage was hard. But man, Egypt? Like, no. It was slavery. See it for what it was. See the path for what it is. And know that Jesus today is saying, just keep going. Keep on that path. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there are a few on it. But you're in good company. And life is in store. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, God. We praise you for who you are. Lord, you know where each is at. Lord, maybe even this morning there could be someone joining us online or watching or listening later on. They're going, man, that's me. I'm on that road leading to destruction. Just in your own heart, you would just say, Jesus, that's me. Lord, I need you. Jesus, save me, please. Forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I repent. I turn away from my sin. I turn in faith to you. I put my trust in you, Jesus. Be my Savior and Lord and friend. You come into my life. Cleanse me. Give me new life. Help me to walk in that abundant life. And Lord, today, would you give me the promise, the hope of eternal life with you? I just encourage you as you do that, that you can know today the authority of Scripture, those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, those who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Lord, help us, help us to respond to these things. Lord, with just hearts of gratitude, hearts of surrender. Lord, worshiping you with every ounce of our being. God, remembering, knowing, Lord, what you've done, what you've provided. We're thankful, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.